Well, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 3 for this second message entitled, How to Stand Firm. How to Stand Firm. We began looking at this passage, Philippians 1 through, or excuse me, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, last week, and Lord, Lord willing, we'll finish our study of this section next week. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, when you're there, follow along as I read. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." What Paul says here by way of personal testimony, he means to offer as an example for us to follow. In fact, if you look down in verse 17, Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So while verses 3 to 11 don't have any imperatives, there are no commands Paul models here how all Christians ought to think and ought to live. And the end result of following Paul's example will be, as he says in chapter 4, verse 1, that we will stand firm in the Lord. We will stand firm in the Lord. Now, let's be clear about what it means to stand firm in the Lord. First, what it doesn't mean. To stand firm in the Lord does not mean that we are unaffected by the myriad of challenges and difficulties of life. Uh, It does not mean that we stoically absorb the blows that come at us unfazed. One can be standing firm in the Lord and be an emotional wreck. One can be standing firm in the Lord and be completely confused about what is going on. One can be standing firm in the Lord and be completely uncertain about how to move forward in a situation. 
To stand firm in the Lord means this. Mark this. To stand firm in the Lord means that you are firmly planted and unmoved from your confidence that you are in Christ and He will keep you to the end. To stand firm is to be utterly convinced that Christ has secured your eternal life and there is nothing you or anyone else can do to to loosen His grip on you. To stand firm in the Lord is to know that whatever situation you find yourself, even those life-threatening situations, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you will receive your eternal inheritance sooner rather than later. And if you were to wake up one day in the hospital with every bone in your body broken, you can rejoice because you have the privilege of living for Christ and a unique opportunity to be a testimony to those who care for you. To stand firm is to know that when you are rightly accused of wrongdoing, because you are found in Christ, you can be honest and open about your sin and your failures. And if those accusations are false and your reputation is marred, then you can be confident that in the justice of God, you will one day be vindicated at the proper time. And you don't need to retaliate or to defend yourself. To stand firm in the Lord means that when unbelievers mock you or scoff you or ridicule you or attack you, when they take your possessions or your job or your life, you can be confident that because you are in Christ, He sees and He knows and He will repay. And you have the privilege of suffering for His sake and you will be rewarded by Him. Again, I say that to stand firm in the Lord means that you are firmly planted and unmoved from your confidence that you are in Christ and Christ will keep you until the end. Now, how do you get there? How do you grow these deep roots and be firmly planted on the rock of Christ? What are the measures that you must take? Well, that's what Paul teaches us here in verses 1 to 11. The first stabilizing measure that we saw last week that Paul gives us is that we are to discern friend from foe. We are to discern friend from foe. In verses 2 and 3, Paul charged us, as you can see there, to beware, to look out for those who would seek to move us away from Christ. And he uses what appears to us to be strong language as a stark contrast from the advertising materials of the false teachers. They claim they were the civilized ones, and the Gentiles are the dogs. But the truth is, anyone who rejects God's Word and lives according to their own desires is like a dog. They claim that they are workers of righteousness, but anyone who says that God's words are null and void, they are evil workers. They claim that their circumcision would make them acceptable to God. But they are no different than the pagans who believe that they could cut themselves to appease God. Following Paul's pattern, if we are to stand firm in the Lord, we have to be able to see through the deceptive veil of those who would move us away from the truth. And we grow in that discernment as we remember who we are. And that's the point of verse 3. 
that we are those who have experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that the, the Holy Spirit has cut off the old man. He's given us a new heart and a new spirit. We are those who have been brought together as a temple in the Lord, and we serve Him in His power and for His glory. We are those who don't look to ourselves as the basis of what makes us acceptable to God, but we firmly place our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf as the only way and the only truth and the only life. And it's on that note of confidence that then Paul gives us our next stabilizing measure. In order to stand firm in the Lord, the stabilizing measure we must take here is that we are to lose everything for Christ. We are to lose everything for Christ. Here in verses 4 to 9, we learn the full cost of following Christ. Paul's personal testimony here should be true of every Christian. And so this is an opportunity for you and me to examine our own lives and what is it that we are placing our confidence in. And for those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is an opportunity for you to see that Jesus is worth giving up everything to follow Him. In this text, as you saw, Paul uses words like gain and loss, value and count. And so Paul is speaking as an accountant making a profit-loss analysis of his life. And so if we are to stand firm, we too must make that same kind of analysis of our own lives. Our enemies and our trials will force us to make an audit of our lives. The the cost of following Christ is such that there will be many days where you will question if following Christ was really the right investment. And if you don't do the right calculations and the right projections, you might be tempted to give up on Christ and invest in something that you believe will give you short-term gains, forgetting the long-term loss. And so as we work through Paul's accounting of his life here, we already know what the final numbers will be, but I do think it's important to consider Paul's attitude as he reflects on this cost of following Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't convey this loss that he's given or this loss that he counts it in a way that demonstrates lament. Paul is not looking at what he's given up with sorrow, as if somehow what he's given up is perhaps on the same plane or maybe even better than what he's gained. No, not at all. Paul's disposition is not lament, it is joy. Paul here identifies with those two men that Jesus talked about in his parables in Matthew 13, where he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then hid again. And from joy, he he goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that field. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had to purchase that one pearl. Gaining Christ is worth more than the entire collective value of everything in your life. Your relationships, your possessions, your education, your reputation, even your health. Having and knowing Christ is worth infinitely more. 
Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? If we really believe that, we would respond very differently to the situations of life than we typically do. One preacher says, if you can't say amen, you've got to say ouch. <laughs> Some of you may be sitting here wondering if following Christ really is worth it. The pain and the consequences of following Christ and standing up for Christ and staying faithful to Christ just makes you wonder, is is it really worth it? For others of you, you have the same question, but for the opposite reason, your life is going fantastic. And you're wondering, is it really worth it to, to give up all the good things that I'm experiencing in life and follow Christ? Well, whatever your reason for questioning the value and the cost of following Christ, I trust This message from God's word will help you. We'll work through this stabilizing measure of losing everything for Christ in three steps. The first step is to take stock of your life. Take stock of your life. The second step is to count the value of your life. And the third step is to count the value of knowing Christ. Take stock of your life, count the value of your life, and then count the value of knowing Christ. And once we've taken those three steps, I trust that we will all affirm with Paul that the only sane, rational, and joyful thing we can do is to lose everything for Christ. And in doing so, we will find great strength and joy in standing firm. Well, let's begin with the first step. Take stock of your life. Look again at verses 4 to 6. Paul writes, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. If anyone could stand before God with confidence in their own resume... It was Paul. He had the best pedigree. He had the best upbringing. He had the best education. He had the best accomplishments. You know, last week I read from 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul makes the point that most of those who are in the kingdom of God come from the lower levels of society. But that's not to say that there aren't some who have equal place in the higher echelons of society and also a place in the kingdom of God. Paul was one of those people. Consider what Paul put on his leisure that for most of his life made him believe that he was acceptable to God. He notes, first of all, in verse 5, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Leviticus 12 verse 3 says that when a woman gives birth to a son, she must circumcise him on the eighth day. Now for Paul, this was not a personal accomplishment. He had no say in the matter, and I would imagine if he did, he probably would have declined. (laughs) But what he's saying is that even from the earliest days of his life, he was right in the middle of God's will. He adhered to the law of God from the very beginning. Now, second, he says there that he is of the nation of Israel. He's a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He's part of the people of God to whom belong, as he says in Romans 9, the adoption as sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises. Paul was a thoroughbred member of the chosen people of God, and as a result, he had all the privileges and the rights thereof. Not only that, but 30 says there in verse 4, more specifically, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. When the nation of Israel divided after Solomon's reign and the northern tribes rebelled against the Judean king, the tribe of Benjamin stayed faithful along with Judah. And so the Benjamites could always say to the other tribes, at least we didn't rebel against the king like you did. There was always unique pride and prestige that came with being part of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, he then says that He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, or literally Hebrew from Hebrews. This refers more to the cultural aspect of his pedigree. Uh, Unlike many Jews who had been Hellenized and adopted various aspects of Greek culture and language, Paul's parents and then Paul himself were true Jews in every respect. So everything about Paul's lineage, his parentage, his upbringing, his culture, propped him up as the purest of the pure in Judaism. There was no blight in his ancestry. There was no blemish in his background. Now, the fifth thing on Paul's resume is, nobody says in verse 5, as to the law, a Pharisee. This is to say that he was, he was one who interpreted and embraced the law of God faithfully. Uh, unlike the Sadducees who only accepted the first five books uh, of Moses, As a Pharisee, Paul embraced all of God's Word. After all, he'd been a disciple of the the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was trained by the best of the best. He was trained in, in a strict and rigorous way that led to unshakable convictions and zeal like no other. That leads to the next quality there into verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. You know, among the Pharisees at that time, there were different attitudes that they would have toward Christianity, towards the church. Some were indifferent, disinterested, really. They had seen sex before. They had seen uh, different uh, false messiahs before, and so they weren't concerned. Most, though, were angry, and they hated the Christians. And so they wrote blogs and recorded podcasts and put out memes mocking and scoffing the crucified man and his followers. But then there were some who didn't just express their anger from the safety of their homes. They went out and they did something. And Paul was chief among those whose zeal led him to travel from city to city, persecuting Christians, putting them in prison, murdering their leaders, stamping out the church. Paul was on the front lines of defending the faith and squashing threats. He was motivated by the desire to protect God's people from error, where at least that's what he believed. The seventh and final quality, the last basis for confidence as Paul took stock of his life, is there at the end of verse 6. He says, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Keep in mind, Paul speaks in terms of the Jewish understanding of the law, Uh, This certainly would not have been true if he interpreted the law the way Jesus did. But in terms of Sabbath-keeping and hand-washing and ritual-keeping and all the external regulations of the law and traditions, Paul had confidence that he had kept it all. And so, as Paul took stock of his life, 
From his ancestry to his upbringing to his culture, his accomplishments, Paul had everything going for him. If anyone could boast in himself, if anyone could trust in what they've done to be saved, if anyone could have confidence that they were set for eternity on the basis of their own life, it was Paul. Now, what about you? What are the things in your life that you would identify as that which would make you right with God? To be clear, I'm not asking you to compare yourself to Paul. I'm asking you, what is true in your life that is commendable? What is it that you may appeal to as you think about what would make you acceptable to God? Do you, for example, take pride in the family that you grew up in? That your parents brought you to church from the earliest days? Maybe some of you were baptized or you were dedicated as, as an infant. From the very beginning, you had that connection with God like Paul. Do you take pride in your ethnicity, perhaps? We do have some Jews in this church, but you don't have to be a Jew to take pride in your ancestry. Perhaps you take pride in what part of the world your ancestors came from or the historical accomplishments of those who came before you. Do you perhaps take pride in in your culture, thinking that the way that you do things and think about things in your culture is, is more influenced by Christianity than other cultures that are influenced by paganism? Is, your, is there a thought in your mind that the way we do things here in America or over there in Africa or over there in Asia or down there in South America, that is the way things should be done? That is what is pleasing to God. As we take stocks of our life, stock of our lives, do you consider your education as that which draws you nearer to God? We have many people in our church who've done master's degrees and doctoral studies and postdoc fellowships. Have you ever found yourself standing on your education or your intellect as somehow making you more pleasing to God? Consider your accomplishments in life. Some of you have achieved some pretty remarkable things. You've, you've been successful in your military career or business endeavors. You've perhaps raised children that have successfully launched out into the world. For some of you, only a small number of people know what you've done because it's top secret, and that can foster a little bit of pride. For others of you, your success has put you in rooms with very powerful people. Still others have a portfolio of successful projects and accomplishments, maybe people whose lives lives you've saved, contracts you've won, technologies you've advanced. Or in the spiritual realm, those that you've brought to Christ or, or Christians that you've strengthened and, or helped them overcome sin and suffering. What are the accomplishments in your life that you may be placing your confidence in? As you weigh the value of your life, what are the things that you add to the scale? Well, let's consider one other area as you take stock of your life, your righteousness. Some of you have grown up in the church. Uh, You've gone to church every Sunday of your life as far as you know. Uh, You've stayed sexually pure. You've not engaged in in any gross or egregious sin. You've sought to maintain a good reputation, good relationships. You've stood for the truth. As far as you know, your life seems rather spotless. 
Now, nobody's perfect, of course, but as you reflect on how well you've lived according to God's revealed will, you've done fairly well. And so that gets added to perhaps what might make you acceptable to God. My purpose in going through this is simply to help you take stock of your life and consider what it is that you've done or who you are that you would be tempted to say, God, is this what will make you happy? That's the first step in losing everything for Christ. Acknowledge what are the facets of your life that you may be trusting in as you stand before God. Paul has his list here. What's on your list? Well, now let's take, now that we've taken stock of our life, let's uh, move on to the next step. Count the value of your life. Count the value of your life. Look at verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. After taking stock of everything in his life, Paul counts it. He measures it. He weighs it and determines its value. And as you can see there, there was a time when he thought it was gain. For much of his life, his identity and his confidence and his security was bound up in who he was and what he had done because those things were valuable to him. And also, they were valuable to everybody around him. Paul didn't make up his value system on his own. He was told by his parents. He was told by his culture. He was told by his religion, these things are important. These are the things that matter in life. This is what, you, what gets you closer to God. And it's the same way today. We receive from our family, our friends, our culture, a value system, which we then customize as we grow and have our own thoughts. And we measure our lives accordingly. Sometimes we invent even our own currency and and identify things as valuable to us that are really not valuable to anybody else. We spend our energy and our resources. We make sacrifices and we evaluate opportunities on the basis of our value system and the worth that we place on certain things. We define success in life, whether we've achieved it or not, on the basis of our standard of measure. Perhaps it's income level or education level, accomplishments, marital status, ministry positions, and many other things are all weighed in the balance of our value system. And so we are either happy and proud if we've measured up to our value system or we're depressed and discouraged as we look at our life. We may say, God is happy with me. Look at how successful I am. Or we may say, God is judging me because I've fallen short of my standard of measure. So I ask you, as you take stock of your life, how do you weigh those components in your life? As you list the elements of your life in a leisure, how do you appraise them? Though for much, much of his life, Paul valued those things as gain, as profit, 
as those things that contributed to his worth and his standing before God, look again at how he assessed them now in verses 7 and 8. He said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things now I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, I I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Everything in Paul's life, all the things that he used to stand on for his identity and value was once gain, but now it's loss. It was once an advantage to him, now it's a disadvantage to him. It was once profit, now it's forfeit. It was once treasure, but now it's trash. Now keep in mind the narrow context of what Paul is saying. He's not speaking generally about what are the positive things in life, what are good pursuits, uh, what are good things for us to do. He's speaking narrowly about evaluating, evaluating our life for the purpose of putting together a portfolio that we would present to God as what makes us acceptable to Him. He's talking about what you would put on your resume that you would hand to God as to why He should accept you. And what Paul means when he talks about loss and rubbish is not that the value of those things is zero, But whatever value he was placing on those things, he's really added a negative sign. They are detrimental to him now. They are debt. This is the idea of Isaiah 64 verse 6, which says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. A filthy garment is literally a soiled menstrual cloth. The word rubbish there in verse 8 is scubalon. It's a crass and sharp term referring to the refuse of human and animal waste. Because this term speaks of vile things, there are those who have said that Paul really used an ancient cuss word, and therefore they've promoted the idea that there are times when believers should use profane speech. But that is decidedly not the case. This is not a word where the word itself is offensive. It merely speaks directly of offensive things without euphemism. Here's the picture. When we come to God and we bring to Him all of the things that we think should attract Him to us, He is repulsed by us. He's nauseated by our attempts to come to Him on our own terms And by our own value system. Rather than drawing a smile from him as we think we would, our self-promotion actually increases his wrath toward us because what we are doing is we are rejecting his word that that he says there is nothing we can bring to him on ourselves, by ourselves as tribute. And so my friends, recognize that God is not impressed by you or me. In and of ourselves, our value to God is worth only to be burned by fire. It's how Scripture describes hell. It's the trash heap outside of Jerusalem where an endless fire consumes the rubbish of the people. But let's not sit in despair. Let's take the next step. First, we took stock of our life. Then we counted the value of our life. Now it's time to count the value of 
of knowing Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. More than that, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Whereas the stuff of our life has no value to God, Jesus Christ is of surpassing value. As truly God and truly man, Jesus is of infinite worth. As the second member of the Trinity, the value of the Son of God is intrinsically tied to God Himself because He is God and God's measure, God's value cannot be measured. You know, when our family lived in Washington State, we were just 30 minutes from the Canadian border, and often we would cross over to visit family or for other reasons. And as soon as you crossed over the border, if you went to a store, you could not use American currency, even though we were just 30 minutes from home. Friends, once you cross the border from this life to the next, everything that you once valued in life disintegrates into nothing. But Christ, whose life transcends earth and heaven, is of immeasurable value on earth and in heaven. The term surpassing value here is a superlative of comparison, which means that whatever you compare to Christ, He is of infinite value. He is better than. He surpasses. He rises above. He is more excellent than anything else in the world. What are ways we can measure His value? John, uh, Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing Jesus Christ carries the same value as eternal life. Unlike the components of our lives that are temporary and which will pass away, knowing Christ grants eternal life, which is not just a length of time, but a quality of life that begins even now. For example, knowing Christ gains you access immediately to the presence of the sovereign God of the universe before whom you can bring your praises and your sorrows and your confessions and your thanksgiving and your requests. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So we receive the grace and mercy we find Excuse me, we, we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need because we can enter the throne of grace through Christ. In John 6, crowds of thousands uh, left Christ because they couldn't handle what he said. Even many who consider themselves his disciples uh, left. They, they decided he was not worth their time. He was not worth their energy. They had better things to do. And so Jesus asked the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter, in one of his better moments, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus declared that hearing Jesus speak was worth everything to them, more than life itself, because in his words they found all that they needed. 
And so in knowing Christ, we too can go to the source of knowledge and wisdom. How else can we count the value of knowing Christ? Well, think about this. If you know Christ, the debt that you owe to God, every sin you've ever committed, which each one individually and all of them together have earned you everlasting condemnation from God, all of your sin is paid for in full and utterly wiped away. More than that, the eternal riches of Christ are placed into your account, and that transaction can never be reversed. But wait, there's more. Knowing Christ makes you a member of His body, the church, where you receive instruction and encouragement and support the rest of your life. Knowing Christ gives you the privilege of having the very Spirit of God dwelling within you, empowering you, giving you wisdom, and moving you toward Christ-likeness. And He will never leave you or ever forsake you. Knowing Christ gives you employment in the service of the King of Kings, where you serve as an ambassador for Him in this life. Knowing Christ gives you access to the many mysteries of life and understanding why things are the way they are and how things should be and can be and what will take place in the future. We could go on and on reflecting on the value of Christ, that is, what knowing Christ gives you and places into your account as credit. Now perhaps someone might say, well, that sounds great. Is there a combo platter? where I can keep my life and know Christ. No, you can't. (laughs) Jesus said in Luke 9, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So friends, we must count the cost. We must consider the value of our life and compare it to the value of knowing Christ. And Jesus calls us to do this. He calls us to weigh our life in the balance with following Him. He says in Luke chapter 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if, his, if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he has set out to meet another battle, Jesus says, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, Jesus concludes, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Is this not what Paul models for us here in Philippians chapter 3? Not only does he say that he counts everything as loss in verse 7, but he goes on to say in verse 8 that he indeed has suffered the loss of all things. 
So this is not mere pious sentiment on Paul's part. Paul left his home, his countrymen, his religion. He left everything that he used to hold dear, and he did it all to gain and know Christ. Now, what does it mean to gain Christ? Look at verse 9. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Righteousness is what qualifies a person to enter the kingdom of God. In Psalm, 5, uh, Psalm 15, we, ask, or we find this question, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And then it answers it. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Only those who can come to God with a perfect record of righteousness are accepted by Him. Well, because sin is rebellion against God and earns death for the sinner, one cannot have sin and come to God. So when we try to bring anything of ourselves to God, we can't be accepted by God because it's all soiled by sin. And friends, you can't suck it in and hope God doesn't notice how bad you really are. What we need to do then is count everything in our life as loss so that we can be found in Christ. Instead of clothing ourselves in our filthy rags, we need to be clothed in Christ and His righteousness. We need to put ourselves in a position that whenever God directs His gaze at us, He sees not us, but Christ. He sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness. Now, how do you do that? By faith, Paul says. Do you see that? What we want, really what we desperately need, is the righteousness from God that comes by faith. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. To those who are soiled in sin and have no hope of making themselves acceptable to God through their own deeds, God declares that if you count your life as loss, and if you look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see in Him infinite value, and your only hope of a right standing with God, then He will grant you the righteousness of Christ. Or you could put it this way, if you count your life as loss, and Christ as gain, then God will count you as having Christ's righteousness. He will cancel all your past, present, and future sin debt and place the riches of Christ in your account. Can you see how losing everything for Christ brings stability to your life? No longer do you have to worry about your life because the worst thing that can happen to you is that you will come into the presence of Christ. No more do you need to wallow in guilt and shame because Christ has forgiven you of all of your sin and you are clothed in His righteousness. No more do you need to work and exhaust yourself to try and 
turn God's frown into a smile because Christ has done it all. And His work has turned God's judgment into eternal blessing. No more do you need to hide your sin and hope that people don't find out what you're really struggling with. Because you've been set free from sin. And you've been redeemed. And in Christ, you have the power to overcome your sin. If anyone says to you, it's great that you believe in Christ, but there's something that you're missing to be right with God. You can say, oh no, my friend, because I have Christ, I have everything I need. If someone says, it's good that you have Christ, but if you really want to experience a closer relationship to God, then you need to, whatever they say, you can say, oh no, my friend, I am in Christ, and being in Him, I am as close to God as Christ is. If anyone says, it's good that you confessed your sin, but now you need to pay for your sin. You need to do some work to pay for your sin. You can say, I respectfully disagree. I have confessed my sin, and He has fully and freely forgiven me, and there is nothing left to pay. If you are in Christ, you are secure because your relationship to God is secure and unbreakable uh, as the relationship between the Father and the Son. We must lose everything for Christ. We must look at our life and see it as having no value. And we must look to Christ and see that He has paid it all. And in Him we will find our security and our stability. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, where we remember once again Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, let me ask you, have you counted your life as loss to gain Christ? Have you rightly calculated your life and found it wanting? If not, I hope that today you will. And more than that, that you will see Christ as infinitely valuable and precious. You've heard of the value of Christ, and now you have the opportunity to come to God and affirm to Him that you have nothing to bring but your sin. But Christ You now see Him as having done it all. And so you place your hope and your confidence in Him. Do that today and you will gain Christ. You will be found in Him. And God will credit Christ's righteousness to you. And then, having found yourself in Christ, you can begin to experience the power of Christ for your life which is what we will look at next week from verse 10. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect on this truth, it's the true statement to say that we have such an elevated view of ourselves, that we who are sinners and worthy only of condemnation, would ever think that we can hide our sin from you and highlight whatever good things we think we've done to please you. In so doing, we have judged you as unjust. We have judged you as being easily deceived. We have determined that you are not faithful to your promises We've practiced practical atheism. We've pretended as if there is no true and living God. 
Many of us, that was the character of our life, really all of us, as unbelievers. And sometimes, even as believers, we can look down at ourselves and think, there's some good stuff there. Lord, forgive us for trusting in ourselves in any way that we have. Cause us to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. Even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to remember the the majestic glory in which he dwelled for all eternity, and yet he left that heavenly glory and came to live a life among us, to die the death that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, and we are forgiven in him. May we constantly place our hope and our confidence and our trust in Christ and in Christ alone, so that we would be found in him, having his righteousness. In his name I pray, amen.